We're going to look at the book of Galatians again this morning in chapter 5. And I invite you to find a copy of the Bible somewhere and turn there. Galatians chapter 5, it's page 975 in the House Bibles. Imagine this for a moment. Imagine that you were born a slave. Imagine that you had no real freedom at all, that you and your people were forced to labor for no pay, and that you were treated harshly, and that it had been like this for generations now. You were born into slavery. But one day... God raised up a mighty leader and put his power upon him and he commands your master to release you. And in the beginning he is resistant, but after ten amazing displays of power, each one more fearful than the last one, at last he relents and you and your people are free. Free to go free to live your life under your God, free to work and labor for your own good for the first time in your entire life. And not only that, but the people of the land in which you were enslaved actually enrich you and your family, giving you a vast amount of wealth. And you leave that country uh, richer than when you came in. Uh, How the Lord has turned the tables. And not only that, but as the Lord leads you through a wilderness, He provides food for you and for your family and for your tribe miraculously in the middle of the desert. Food and water. He gives you everything you need. He sustains you every single day. A table set in the presence of your enemies. And how thankful you and I would be. Amen? I mean, we would just say, oh, I will never, never forget this. (laughs) But you know that human nature is ugly apart from God's mercy. And we, even those who are delivered from slavery tend to grow accustomed to grace and begin before long to long for something new. And sometimes that longing for something new tempts us to go right back to the old life. And that is exactly the case for the children of Israel, the people of Israel. And the book of Numbers records what happened next. Numbers 11, verse 4. Now the rabble among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. God's given them every day food from heaven, miraculously appearing. And they say, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish We ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. You can see their mouths watering, right? 
but now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. How foolish, how stupid, and how ignorant can we be as a people to forget the incredible gift of grace that we've been given, to long to go back under slavery, and how perverted our memories become, right? I mean, for them to look back and say, oh, we long for the fish that cost us nothing. No, it cost you everything. It cost you your soul. It cost you your life. It cost you your freedom. But that is human nature. We are tempted to go back under slavery. And Paul is writing to Christians that are tempted in in that way spiritually to forget the wonder of their deliverance who are tempted to go back under a system of enslavement. So look at our text. Galatians chapter 5, the first six verses of this chapter. He says to them, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Well, this is a great paragraph. And and this paragraph, um, really running from verse 1 all the way down to verse 13, we're just going to take through verse 6 today, but this paragraph does two things. First, it kind of summarizes the theological argument of the gospel that he's made so far. And secondly, it introduces the ethical, practical, ethical implications of the gospel that will uh, comprise the rest of the book, essentially. And in verse 1, you have the first of a number of imperatives or commands that will uh, be scattered throughout this last part of the book. Paul now really gets to applying all of this theology to their practice. And the first command he gives them is this, stand firm in the freedom that you have in Christ, right? Stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the command, but behind all of God's commands to us are his acts for us. That's an important thing to remember as a believer. Backing up all of God's commands to us are His acts for us. And that's what you see at the very beginning of the verse. He says, Christ has set us free. So, stand firm in that freedom that Christ has already won for you. So, I want us to think, first of all, about this freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we're so used to freedom, this freedom that He's talking about, that our salvation 
has stopped becoming a marvel to us. Paul's whole argument here is that Christ has set his people free. Free with regard to the law's demands. And for the Galatian Christians and the Galatian churches, the freedom for them meant, first of all, freedom from the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law with all of its demands uh, for circumcision, for food laws about what they could eat and what they couldn't eat, all of these things that were imposed, as he says, until the time of Reformation, all the commandments that distinguished and isolated the Jews from the Gentile peoples. He delivered them from the law with all of its demands for perfect obedience in order to have life in the land of promise threatening expulsion and death if they disobeyed and broke the covenant. These, this law has been fulfilled in Christ, so he has set them free from it. The law for them had been like a jailer, he said. Remember this back in chapter 3 and, and in the beginning of chapter 4? The law was like a jailer who kept them imprisoned, Israel imprisoned until Christ came. And part of the function, honestly, of the law was just to make them out, to mark them out as a peculiarly sinful people in order that they may see their desperate need for a deliverer. Not that their sin was any worse than the sins of the other peoples of the world, but rather that they could see it because they had the law that would to drive them to Christ. The law was like a guardian, he said, that imposed the legal boundaries on the child until he reached finally the age of maturity. All of the demands of the law, Paul has argued, have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And because they are fulfilled, the entirety of the Mosaic covenant as a covenant has been done away with. It was a temporary master of these people and now has been fulfilled in the Savior. Now, of course, the law also embodied the moral will of God, the eternal moral will of God. That is, the law whose work was written on the hearts of Adam and Eve the moral will of God that they knew in their consciences even before God gave the Ten Commandments. The law, this is the law that the Canaanites who did not have the covenant were expelled from the land for violating. This is the law that Christians continue to endeavor to keep by the Spirit from their hearts. But in terms of a covenant, as a covenant of, of works, the Mosaic law was fulfilled. All of the demands that promise blessing, all of the curse because of covenant breaking was taken upon our hero. And as a covenant, it has been done away with. Its types and shadows are fulfilled in Christ. Its legal demands are perfectly obeyed by Him. Its curse was vicariously borne by Him. And its sign, the cutting off of circumcision, has been done away with when the Messiah was cut off for our sake. And now, 
Christ has established a covenant of peace, a new covenant that will never be cut off, as the scripture says, a new creation inaugurated with the shedding of Christ's blood and awaiting its consummation at the appearing of his glory. Christ has set us free, free from the law. And secondly, for the, for the Galatian churches, it meant freedom. For many of them were not Jews. It meant for them freedom from the false gods that they used to worship, the elemental spirits of the world, as Paul says, the powers of spiritual ignorance and idolatry and godless philosophy that had enslaved those Gentiles who did not know God. He set them free from that. He's brought light. He's brought deliverance. He's brought the breaking of those bonds, those spiritual bonds. God had set His people free. But most of Abraham's physical offspring had rejected their Messiah and so continued on being slaves, slaves to the law, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And now even Gentiles who were being instructed by these false teachers coming into the churches, they were being tempted to follow suit and to trade one kind of slavery that they used to have for another kind of slavery by going under the law, seeking to be justified before God on the basis of their observance of the law instead of through Christ alone. And, you know, people today are tempted to trust in something other than Christ and Christ alone for salvation. People trust in all kinds of things. They're, they sort of rely. They may give lip service to trusting in Christ, but they're, they're real dependence of their mind and their hearts is on something else. Maybe it's going to Mass regularly, or maybe it's doing penance faithfully, or maybe it's their work in church or for charity, or maybe the frequency of their personal devotions, or the fact that they walked an aisle or responded at some evangelistic rally, or that they were born into a Christian family, or that they joined a church at some point in their life. But but they're they're really... when it comes down to it, their hope and their dependence is on something that they've done or some things that they've done, something that's true about them by nature, rather than being ascribed to the grace of God alone through the obedience of Christ on their behalf. And if we begin to place our dependence upon our own work, we have made a potentially fatal step. And if we go on in that way, friends, the Bible says we will fail to obtain salvation. And so this is a really, just a powerful book and an important book that will center us again and again upon the old gospel story and the sweetness of Christ for us. Paul describes in three ways that walking away from the gospel would be fatal for the Galatian believers. Number one in verse two, 
Verse 2, he says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be what? Of no advantage to you. Now, first of all, when he says you accept circumcision, he doesn't just mean that you are circumcised. Circumcision was commanded by God as part of the old covenant. First given to Abraham and then reaffirmed with Israel at Mount Sinai. It was a sign of God's promise that would be fulfilled through Abraham's offspring. But with the coming of that offspring, the old covenant ended, the sign was done away with in terms of having any more covenantal significance, any more spiritual religious significance to the sign of circumcision. Paul says that's done. Now, that being the case, um, he could feel free to have uh, Timothy become circumcised in order to further the ministry of the gospel among the Jews. He says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, in order that I might win those under the law. So, so there were times when Paul was willing to have some of his protégés um, to be circumcised, and other times, like Titus, when he absolutely refused. We read that earlier in this, in this chapter. But the, the difference between Paul's willingness at times to do this and the false teachers and what they were advocating with the Christians in Galatia was the difference is a matter of motive. It was a matter of trust. For Paul, circumcision now was a matter of indifference. But he consented to it for the sake of evangelism among the Jews in certain cases. The, for the, but for the false teachers, circumcision was way more than that. It was the grounds for their justification before God. They would say, and you can read this in, um, in Acts chapter 15, if you would be saved, you must be circumcised. And you see that in this text. This is really what they're arguing. It's not just that you should be circumcised. It's that this is a matter of justification. And here's, here's why I say that. Look in verse 2, 3, and 4. There are three parallel expressions in these three arguments that he's making about the misstep of, of accepting circumcision. In verse 2, he says it this way. If you accept circumcision, you see those words? Verse 3, he says something almost similar, almost the same. Every man who accepts circumcision. But look how he says it in verse 4. You who would be justified by the law. That is the law of circumcision. In other words, they're making this, the circumcision, a matter of justification before God. And if we take, friends, if we take any act of obedience that God commands as the basis of our justification before God. That, Paul says, is another gospel. That kind of gospel will not save. Christ, he says, will be of no advantage to you. In other words, you can't have it both ways. You can't have justification 
by law and grace. It's either works or faith. It's either merit or mercy. It's either self or Christ. You can have two chairs, but you can't put all of your weight on both chairs at the same time. And you cannot rest the weight of your soul on both Christ alone and on Christ plus something else. As the proverb says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. If you do, if your trust is in self or in anything other than Christ, Ultimately, Paul says, Christ is of no, uh, of no profit to you and to your soul. Secondly, he says in verse 3, that if you accept or rely on circumcision for your justification before God, then, he says, secondly, you are obligated to keep the whole law. And he prefaces this by saying, I testify Again, right? Because he said this same thing in essence before. If you remember back in chapter 3, verse 10, this is a really huge uh, verse, a really key verse uh, that I hope you'll always remember. Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to what? To do them. Yeah, some of you know it. Cur- listen to it again. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, the kind of obedience that's required, if you're going to seek to be justified by the law, then the kind of obedience that you are going to be have to render is number one, personal obedience, curse be everyone. Secondly, perfect obedience, everyone who does not abide by all the law. And thirdly, perpetual obedience, everyone who does not abide, who does not continue to obey all the law, everyone who does not do that perfectly, completely, entirely, exactly, he will be um, brought under the curse of the law. So if you're going to be justified by the law, he says, if you're going to rely on, on one element of the law, like, um, like, like your circumcision, then you're going to have to keep the whole law. If that's the way you're going to go, there is within the human heart a compulsion to justify ourselves, right? You know I'm right. You have to raise kids to know I'm right. You just look at yourself to know I'm right. Every human heart. When you're confronted with your wrong, the, one of the first things that the human heart wants to do is to justify itself. And how do we do that? How do we try to vindicate what we perceive as our own basic goodness before God to prove our worth? Well, we sometimes measure ourselves on a kind of sliding scale, comparing our goodness or our morality in relation to what? And to our neighbor, to other people. When there is one and only one standard of what is acceptable behavior before God, and that's God's own word, His own law. 
or we try to externalize God's rigorous expectations of holiness into some sort of manageable religious rituals that we can perform. And if we feel like we're doing those things, sort of checking off the boxes, that that is our holiness or our righteousness before God. Or we compare and sort of weigh out our good deeds as we perceive them with what we know was bad, and as if justification before God were simply a matter of sort of tipping the scales just ever so much in the right direction. But if we choose to rely on our works, Paul says we are obligated then to do all the works. If you're going to rely on obedience to the law, then you're obligated to keep the whole law. Most people today, most everybody that you talk to will say something like this. You know, when you confront, when you confront somebody about the claims of the gospel, or the, the demands of God's law, rather, they will say, well, nobody's perfect, right? We all make mistakes. I'm trying the best I can. I'm sure God doesn't expect perfection. Well, that just flies in the face of what God has said. That just shows we want to believe what we want to believe rather than what God said to believe. For God says, if you're going to be justified by works, He does demand perfection. Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience because He is a perfect God. And He's perfectly just. We cannot sort of let His justice slide. It is who He is. And and yet, in His love and in His mercy, He Himself has provided that perfection for us. Amen? Who can say that He's not full of compassion and love? It's just going to be up to you whether you decide to depend on that provision that God has made in Christ or whether you're going to depend on your own self-righteousness. You're going to continue to work for your own justification before Him. There's a third way in which walking away from the gospel, Paul says, will prove to be fatal. And that's in verse 4. Verse 4, he says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Severed from Christ. The word severed here, means to render useless or to make of no effect. Christ is of no effect for you, he says. You you are removed from the sphere of the effects of his, His salvation. You have fallen away from grace. The Galatians had confessed that they were relying on the grace of God and now they're being tempted to depart from that stance and to rely on their own works. And Paul says this would have the effect of nullifying the work of Christ on your behalf. He's not saying that those who are truly united to Christ by the almighty power of God can be lost. But that truly regenerated people will in fact persevere in the faith. There will always be some who prove not to be truly a part of the people of God by their falling away. 
these false confessors plague the church at times. John says it this way in 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not, they would have continued with us. There's the perseverance of the faith. How do you know someone who's truly part of God's people? He continues with us, but they went out that it might become plain, that it might become evident and manifest that they were not really of us. I know most of you have confessed a faith in God's Son, in God's grace, in the work of Christ on your behalf. And there may be some of you who have been tempted to walk away, to go after another gospel, uh, maybe a false religion of some sort or some cult that denies the gospel or just to go off into sin and stop caring anymore, or into just general unbelief, maybe because you've you've become bitter by some difficult providence of God. And I say to you, with all the love of my heart, brother or sister, the path that you're on is a dangerous one indeed. And if you persist down that path, you will be lost. Christ's sacrifice will have no effect. and You will be left on your own to stand before the judgment of the Almighty God. There is no hope. Listen to me. There is no other hope apart from Jesus Christ. Whatever is alluring you and tempting you, I will hope you will see the vanity of that thing and that the only one that has the words of eternal life is the Lord Jesus. Like Paul told his fellow passengers in the storm on the boat, uh, God has revealed to me, he says, that all of us will be saved. But he says, if you would be saved, you must not leave the ship. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, if you leave, if you leave Christ, you will die. You will perish. So for all of these reasons, he's just full of impassioned warning for the Galatian Christians who are listening to these false teachers. The false teachers have their ear and and they're about to go away from Christ. And he says, oh, brothers, don't do it. Don't go that way. Turn and come back where there is grace with God. And like the writer of Hebrews, uh, I think Paul would say here to them, though we speak in this way, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Or like the writer of Hebrews says later, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere Uh, and preserve, excuse me, and preserve their souls. So Paul now comes back with an encouragement um, to those who have faith. In verse number 5, verse number 5, he says, Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. 
eagerly waiting is the terminology of eschatology. Romans chapter 8 comes up several times in that passage. We wait in hope. This is a waiting in faith by the Spirit. Not a reliance on works, but faith in Christ and in His righteousness. What is he waiting for? I think Paul is waiting for that day when standing before God in the final judgment, he would be found to be righteous. He would be publicly declared by God to be righteous in and through Jesus Christ because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of His imputed righteousness, because of union with Him. And while that public declaration is yet future for Paul as well as for us, nevertheless, the assurance of that future verdict is already given ahead of time for those who have faith in Christ. They will stand in the day of judgment. This to me was just an enlivening truth to meditate on this week. What joy there is, what freedom there is right now, presently, in the Christian life because of Christ. Our future verdict at the final judgment that will be more fearful than anything you can possibly imagine that's ever happened in the history of the universe. That final judgment when humanity stands before the Almighty, the declaration that will be made on that day about you is already given to you now. You are justified. You will be justified, but you are justified. Why? Because your justification ultimately doesn't rest on your own activity, your own obedience, for it will fall short every time but your righteousness rests in Jesus Christ's obedience on your behalf, in His taking of the covenant curse on your behalf. So your righteousness is the same yesterday and today and forever. So he says, we wait for that day when that declaration that God has already made about us, by faith we receive it, that declaration is made public. We are vindicated. Here's the way John says it. Again, in his letter in 1 John, he says in 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in Him, that is in Christ, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. Those who abide in Christ, those who persevere in their faith in Christ, are assured that when they get to that day, they won't be ashamed. They will not be uh, shrink back. They will have confidence to stand in God's judgment because of Christ. And just a few verses later, he says in John, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is then in that day, we will be made perfect. Amen? Our public proclamation before God and all of the angels and all who watch will be that this is, in fact, a Son of God. But, he says, we don't have to wait for that day. We can know by faith in Christ that we are God's children even now because we are united to Him who is the only begotten Son of God. So in that day, we will be proclaimed sons of God, 
justified, vindicated, well-pleasing unto the Lord because of Christ and only because of Christ. I want to ask you to think about what it will be like in that last judgment day for you. How you will stand in that day. Do you have any, do you have a real biblically based assurance of how you will stand in that day? The answer all depends on what you're relying on. Whether you are relying on Christ or anything else. There is only one sure foundation. All other ground is sinking sand. And finally in verse 6, in verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor in fact uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith. It's just, just like it's, it's possible, and, and certainly these um, Christians were tempted to rely on circumcision for their salvation. So it's possible, I suppose, to become perversely proud that they, that they weren't circumcised. And that's where their trust was. Well, we made the right decision not to be circumcised, and so we will be saved because we made that right decision and did that right thing. He says, listen, I'm not talking about being proud of either one, relying on either one or on anything that you do. The gospel of faith doesn't boast in anything but Christ, in any human work as the basis for our salvation. Christ if, if that is the case, then Christ is robbed of His glory. Do you see that? If, if human beings boast in anything, it removes the glory that belongs to Christ and Christ alone, which is the, the whole motivation for God's plan of salvation and the way He structured it. And the gospel, that kind of gospel, just becomes an idolatry that lifts up some other... Savior, whether it's yourself or whatever, other than the one true and living Savior. But notice also that faith, according to this verse, also has an experiential effect in our lives, right? Take, a, take notice of verse 6 again. It is faith. Here's what counts. Faith, but it's faith working through love. This is the first time that works are spoken of positively in the book of Galatians. And there's a whole Christian theology of works. Um, deeds, activity that flows out of faith. That is an important part of our theology. And, and we'll see that unfolded in these last couple of chapters. But it, Paul has waited up to this point, I think, because he wants to make sure that the groundwork of justification by faith alone is fully laid before he now begins to admonish us to live lives of good works. But this will become a dominant theme in the last part of this book. What counts is faith, but faith always works. True faith works through love. Notice that, according to this passage, this, uh, this phrase here, faith is the root. Faith is what's working. Faith is the root. The works of love are the fruit of faith. 
works and love are never the basis of our justification before God. As if God looks down and he sees you doing good deeds, being loving to your neighbor, and he says, okay, now I will declare you as to be righteous and to receive you as my son and give you a place in heaven. It's not the basis of our justification. Christ is and Christ alone. His work and his love are perfect where our works, even our works that flow from faith and love, are pale reflections of his own good work, his own perfect work. And remember, the only way anyone will stand before God is on the basis of a personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. And that is, for a Christian, none other than the obedience of Jesus Christ alone. But the same Spirit who unites us to Jesus Christ with all of the benefit of His works also forms Christ in us so that all of Christ's works are manifested in us progressively, though maybe never perfectly, yet surely and truly. The bottom line of all of this, the way I want to leave you this morning is just to remind you what God intends for us to take away from this text. The call to persevere in our faith in Christ. And I think sometimes when when we talk about the perseverance of the saints, that sometimes people get a, a misconception and and think of I don't know, think of it as some kind of arduous effort, this perseverance of the saints, that arduous effort on our part that will bring about the blessing of God somehow, or some kind of obsessive perfectionism that might make us worthy of salvation if just we persevere enough, or a need to kind of conquer my own sins somehow, persevere against my sins until I reach some level at which God will accept me. This is not the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Apostasy in this context is a reliance on self rather than Christ. Those who persevere are those who realize afresh every day that they are miserable and poor and blind and weak and that they can continue to need Christ and His perfect righteousness every single day of their lives. That's perseverance. And only then is a Christian able to live with with confidence, to use the words of Paul, to live in freedom. To live in hope. This kind of confidence that almost seems sacrilegious to some people. How can you be that sure that you will stand in the day of God's judgment. That's just foolhardy. No, it is not because our confidence is not in ourselves, but is wrapped up in the perfect righteousness of our Savior. And we know we can live in freedom now. We can live in freedom because we know that the final verdict of that great judgment has already been pronounced for us. And it sounds like this. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And everything that a Christian has is all wrapped up in Him. 
My life is wholly bound to His. And on that note, I say, Amen and Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Oh, Father, bless You and praise Your name for such a gracious salvation that You Yourself provided our righteousness. How condescending, how merciful, how kind. How selfless is Your love. And I just pray, oh Lord, that You would convince the most jaded of hearers of the wonder of this message. I pray that You would cause these hearers today, Lord, to be made new. You would give them hearts of faith that you would renew their faith again afresh this morning, having heard the old, old story. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.